So way to go, way to show up on this balmy spring day. Uh, welcome, welcome here this morning. And uh, if you, particularly if you're new here, you're exploring SunWest, special welcome to you. I want to give a quick update before I jump into this morning's uh, message. And uh, it's an update from our Mexico team. It uh, just came in to me when I was uh, sitting uh, down here this morning, and it said, uh, our team of 143 youth, young adults and leaders left early Friday morning to drive down to Mexico. Uh, and if you were here last week, you would have seen uh, we had 140 of them here on stage. And it was a great morning of praying for them, sending them off. Uh, the, dra- the drive down was great, and the U.S. border crossing went well. This morning, they will cross into Mexico with a more ministries whom they have partnered with for 22 years doing this trip. They will get to camp for lunch and will set everything up there. Over the next four days, they will build eight houses for Mexican families in need. Thank you very much for your support and for your prayers. We would ask that you continue to pray for open hearts, for health, and for safety. So please join me in praying for them throughout this week as we remember them. And just a reminder that the Thursday after they get back, so not this Thursday, but the following Thursday, it will be a dessert night where they'll share stories uh, from the trip here. And so we invite you all back uh, then for the dessert night. Um, how many of you have been on the Mexico trip before? Okay. How many of you uh, are experiencing FOMO uh, as they... As uh, okay, a, f- a few of you, okay? So FOMO uh, means fear of missing out. Uh, every year in the Mexico trip, I get severe FOMO. And so we're going to have prayer ministry time uh, after the service. For anyone who has FOMO, we'll have prayer teams available. You can come, come up front, and uh, I'll be first in line there. So um, anyways, we're continuing our series, Long Story Short, where we are attempting to try and tell the biblical story uh, in 13 weeks, and as you know, it's been very difficult, and that's part of the reason uh, why we've given you uh, a booklet like this, and if you don't have one, you can grab one from the back uh, on your way out, and it's not too late to jump in. There's also a PDF uh, booklet available, and so uh, the whole idea is we're, we're going to try and hit some of the big themes on Sundays, but obviously Sunday is not enough time to fill in all the gaps, and there's a reading plan for you, as well as places to take notes on the Sunday. So the idea is that you can kind of read during the week, uh, fill, fill in kind of the elements of the story. If you're following along in your reading plan, you know we've gotten to Exodus 20. We're going to pick up the, uh, the story uh, this morning, and that'll just help you uh, kind of become aware of uh, the whole biblical narrative. And the reason why that's important, and the reason why I think doing the series is important, is because often we kind of jump into one verse or one story and we can come up with all sorts of ideas about what that verse means, what that story means. But as we talked about in week one, it's kind of when we understand the whole scope of the story, where it began, where the story is going, that we realize uh, where everything fits in that story. And actually, not only where everything fits in that story, but also where we fit in that story. So this morning, we were picking up the theme of covenant, which I uh, introduced a little bit a few weeks ago when I was talking about uh, Abraham and, uh, and the covenant that God made with Abraham. And the, and the word covenant, from the Hebrew word covenant literally means to cut. And so what would happen in that time, in that ancient time, before the Bible was written, in this culture where they believe in multiple gods, and there's gods of regions, uh, gods of you know, the, the, you know, the sun god, the water god, the fertility god, and, and there was different gods in different regions. And, and what would happen is uh, people would make a covenant with God by cutting an animal in half, whatever the God was. Or they'd make a covenant with each other by cutting an animal in half. And so if I was covenanting with you, we would cut this animal in half, and the idea would be that whatever, if I break this covenant, what has happened to that animal may it happen to me. And so you cut it in half, and then you would walk through the animal uh, with the other covenantal partner and you would enter into this covenant. Because at that time, there was no uh, way of kind of holding people uh, to the law in which you had stated. Uh, They didn't have police officers or anything like that back then, and so the way they did this was giving each other their word, covenanting together. And miraculously, we saw in the story of Abraham that that God's presence went through the animals, uh, and Abraham watched. And that God kind of established himself as the covenant keeper, the covenant maker and the covenant keeper. Now, a covenant is significantly different than a contract. And if you've done marriage counseling with any SunWest pastors, then you're probably familiar with this idea of a covenant or a contract. Uh, they're, they're substantially different. How many have, of you have been to a wedding ceremony in the last year? 
Okay, quite, a, quite a few of you. Yeah, I've had the opportunity to do uh, tons of weddings. And uh, weddings are, are this beautiful and meaningful event in our culture. I love doing weddings. I love, um, you know, seeing uh, the expression of the, the groom's face when the bride walks down the aisle. And I, I love the, the sense of excitement around a wedding. And I like to think it's because of the, the sermon. <laughs> Put all this time into the sermon. But, but I know it's not the sermon because when, as I get towards the vows, um, all of a sudden I just see people kind of waking up and starting to pay attention again. And they're like, okay, here's, here's what it came for. Here's the moment. And, and, and they're wondering, is, the, you know, is, that, is that guy that never shows any emotion, is he going to break? Can we see him break? Um, or the, or the person that's like extremely over-emotional, are they just going to lose themselves? You know, are they going to be able to handle themselves? And so, and so they come to this moment in the wedding ceremony where they, they give these vows. And I think in our culture, this is probably the clearest point in which we, we see this idea of covenant. And we, we, we feel that when we're at a wedding. We, if you've been married, you know that feeling when you're walking into a wedding, that this, the sense that you're, you're going to enter into something that's beyond just you know, an iPhone contract that you set up with TELUS. It's a little bit bigger than that. You know, I remember one of the first uh, weddings I did, and I had to tell the story because uh, my younger brother's here this morning. He'd hate it if I told the story about him. So, uh, Mitch, where are you? Okay, yeah, the shy little wave over there in the, the front row. So, um, and his wife, Jody. Jody, put up your hand. Can you guys welcome my younger brother? He's a <laughs> farmer in Manitoba. Came out. For the weekend. Anyway, so my very first wedding that I ever officiated was Mitch's wedding. And uh, so my first year in pastoral ministry, 15 years ago, uh, Mitch asked me if I would do his wedding. And so we were in, you know, this, this green room before we go out on the stage where he's going to marry Jody. And uh, I don't know if it's because he was, what were you, 19 or 20 at the time? Really young. Uh, and uh, all of a sudden he was just overwhelmed with what he was about to do. And he was, he was sobbing uncontrollably. <laughs> and, I, and it was like five past, like we were five minutes past the time that the wedding is supposed to start. And he, <laughs> he was like having like, like this hyperventilation. I didn't know whether to get a get a paper bag and get him to bring the paper bag. And so no word of a lie, what I did is I, I looked at him in the eye and I went, and I smacked him across the face. <laughs> Said, we got to do this and uh, it's time. And so I think Mitch wins the award for the most tears shed at his wedding. And I think that, I think they were tears of excitement and, uh, you know, they're still married 15 years later. So, uh, you know, good decision, Mitch. You, you did well. Uh, Sorry, it hasn't been 15 years. How many? 13 years. Okay, I was, I was close. Um, I was going to say, I've, I'm, I'm coming up with my 15th anniversary next, next month. So, uh, anyways, so covenant, you know, we, we, we have the sense that this is a big deal. You know, if, if you've gone into, before the altar to marry somebody, you know this is a big deal. If you've been at weddings, you know that there's this anticipation. It's different than a contract. You know, can, can you imagine if we started talking in contract terms when we, when we sat there or we stood there and we were making vows uh, with our spouse? You know, if, you know, I'll get married to you if you agree to do the dishes every day. That's contract language. I'll get married, you know, if you make at least $50,000 a year, then I will stay married to you. I'll get married if you don't let yourself go. Well, thank goodness we didn't, uh, we didn't put that in the, the covenant. This is language of a contract. Marriage is not a contract, it's a covenant. You know, we don't use that language when we get married. Yet there's this, this, this movement towards trying to teach what has historically been covenantal relationships in a contractual way. In Mexico City, they're looking at introducing a plan or a, an opportunity in, a, in their law for temporary marriage license so that after two years, you can just allow it to dissolve or you can decide at that point if you want to continue. Give it a two-year test run, see how it goes. Covenant is not practice when you feel like it. Covenant isn't easy. It's a commitment. It's hard. It's relationship. It's, it's relational. Covenant is this beautiful thing that we see at the very beginning of the biblical story. Just very quickly, there, you know, contract and covenant. A, co a contract is transactional. There's an agreement to terms. What, what, what are we... What are we 
What's the transaction that's happening here? And a covenant is relational. It's actually about the people. The contract is dependent upon the terms that you agreed upon. A covenant is regardless of the terms. It's beyond the terms. Contracts involve assurances. Covenants involve oaths. You know, there's a reason in our kind of secular society that we have certain offices that take oaths, policemen, judges, etc. It's because our lives are in their hands. And if they're going to actually hold our lives in their hands, we want to make sure that they're taking it seriously, right? So they give oaths. We want them to promise before God because our lives are in their hands. And so, I don't know what they used to, I don't know if they do anymore, but when they make an oath, they put, they put their hands on the Bible. This is what I'm committing to. Contracts exchange goods. Covenants exchange hearts. So God makes covenant with people. The God of the universe, the God of the cosmos actually comes down and we saw in the, in the covenant with Noah that he saved Noah and they made a covenant with him and the sign of the covenant was what? The rainbow. Never will again flood the earth and do this again. God gives the sign of a covenant. And then God makes a covenant with Abraham and he says, you will be my people, you will be a great nation and I'm going to covenant with you and that's what we talked about a few weeks ago. And God gives Abraham a sign of the covenant, and that sign was what? You guys don't want to say it, do you? Circumcision. That was the sign. Uh, I don't know if you guys knew that, or you were just being gun-shy there on the... I don't know if I should get everybody to say circumcision. No, we, we won't do that together. Uh, but sometimes I wonder, is like, how do people know if you had the sign of the... Like, you know, they check you at the door. You know, let's see. You know, are you... Are you in or are you out? You know, take off. And then we get to, into the story of Moses, which we started to look at last week. And, and God, and, and this covenantal story is important. If you're going to understand the scope and the message of Scripture, the, the story of Moses, the covenant with Moses is critically important um, because it's when the Jewish people, the Israelites, actually became a nation. They became a people. So let's kind of take a step back, look at the story. The Israelites were slaves in Egypt for 400 years. They came there originally to get help in a time of famine. They, they stayed after they got help, probably because they were getting help and it was nice and comfortable. And often we stay in places that are comfortable, but when we stay there too long, we become slaves. And so we, we see that the, the Israelites, they come to Egypt to get help. They get help, but they stay there. And they overextend their stay to the point where uh, the Pharaoh had died and there was new Pharaohs in charge and, and they didn't understand the history and over time they just became slaves to the Egyptians. And they wondered in that 400 years if God had forgotten about them. They were waiting on God. They were waiting for God to do something. God, I thought you made a covenant with us. God, I thought you made us a people. We were going to be a great nation. Where's your promise, God? Where, where are you upholding your end of the covenant? For 400 years, God was silent. They were waiting for a deliverer. And then last week when we picked up the story, we, heard, we, we saw that God heard their cry. God heard their groaning. And he remembered the covenant he had made with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Is what the scriptures say. After 400 years. Moses enters the land, land of Egypt. God uses Moses in miraculous ways to eventually bring the Israelites out of Egypt. And so remember, we, we've talked about that, that this was this, this time uh, where the belief system, they had a polytheistic belief system. So they believed in many gods. And the Israelites themselves weren't yet monotheistic. And I think that's important for us to recognize and we'll see the importance of that even as we go into the, the sermon next week. They just believed that Yahweh was the greatest among the gods. That he was, uh, he was superior to other gods. And so Yahweh comes to deliver his people that he made a covenant with in Egypt. And we see that, that he goes into a 10-round boxing match with the Egyptian gods. And if you go through the plagues, 
which we won't do this morning, but you'll see that the plagues are representative of the gods that the Egyptians believed in. You know, God attacks the Nile and turns the water into blood. The Egyptians saw the Nile as their source of life. There was a plague of frogs. The Egyptians believed in a, in a god of fertility, and this god of fertility had the head of a frog. There was a darkened sun in one of the plagues, and the Egyptian gods believed in the sun god of Ra. So God is showing his superiority over the Egyptian gods. And eventually, God takes the firstborn son, and the god that the Egyptians worshipped named Osiris was the god of the dead, and Yahweh shows himself to be the one who is controlling life and death on Osiris' home turf. The plagues are a battle of the gods. And so God comes in, uses Moses in a miraculous way to actually overcome the gods and the Egyptians and bring the people out. The Passover refers to this moment that during the 10th plague. And in this moment, the Israelites put blood, uh, the blood of a lamb on the door frames of their houses because God said he was going to send the destroyer, as it says in Exodus, to go through the, the Egyptian area and to, he would take the life of every firstborn in each household. But if the destroyer came through and saw the blood on the door frame of your house, he would skip over your house, he would pass over your house, and you would, uh, the life of the oldest would be spared. In Exodus 12, 12, it says that this God was coming to bring judgment on all the gods of Egypt. That's what it says in Exodus 12, 12. We also see in Exodus 12 that this was supposed to be a lasting ordinance, something that they were to do every year in remembrance of the event where God rescued them, passed over them, and took them out of Egypt. So every year after this event, the Israelites were to remember it by having a Passover meal together, a Passover event, where they would recite, where they would remember the way that God, after 400 years, broke the silence and came and rescued them and took them out of slavery and made them a nation and made them a people and followed through on the covenant that he made with Abraham. In Exodus 19, after they escape the Egyptians, they come to a mountain called Sinai. And this mountain was the location where all of the action that was going to take place for the next number of chapters On this mountain, there was gathering a cloud. This cloud was taking over the mountain, and, and there was thunder and lightning over the mountains. Moses brought the people to the foot of the mountain, and it was thought that the, the presence of God was residing on top of the mountain in the form of this cloud. And after the Lord descended to the top of the mountain, the people watched Moses as Moses ascended up the mountain towards the cloud where the presence of God was. And if you pay attention to the Exodus story, you'll see that Moses goes up and down this mountain eight times. Everybody say eight times. 7,000 feet, I believe that mountain was, up and down eight times. That's a, that's a good workout for an 80-year-old man, I think. So the people watch Moses go up and down into the cloud, meeting with God. We see here in Exodus 24, the Moses entered the cloud as he went up on the mountain. And he stayed on the mountain for 40 days and 40 nights. And so as you're hearing the biblical story, you're like, man, I feel like I've heard that before. You hear lots of, lots of recycling of, of certain numbers and themes as we go through the story. Not only was there a cloud, was there... On, on the mountain, but there was also fire. There was smoke. This was like an ACDC concert. Before those days, there was lightning, fire, clouds, smoke. And you can just see the village people, thunder, at the bottom of the village. I was like, wait, waiting on, waiting on Moses to come back down. Um, anyways, so Exodus 24, 15. And Moses went up on the mountain, the cloud covered it, it says, and the glory of the Lord settled on Mount Sinai. For six days the cloud covered the mountain, and on the seventh day the Lord called to Moses from within the cloud. To the Israelites, the glory of the Lord looked like a consuming fire on top of the mountain. 
Then Moses entered the cloud again as he went up on the mountain. And so he's up on the mountain, and he comes down the first time, and he verbally gives what we know as the Ten Commandments, the beginning of the Torah, the law. And we see here something important. These aren't just rules. These aren't just laws. These aren't just things that you have to abide by, but, but these are items that reveal God's character. A rule isn't just a rule, but it's revealing something about the rule giver. So we think about no other gods. This is declaring that God is sovereign, that God is the God above all other gods. No graven images reveals that God is transcendent, that God is everywhere, that you don't need a graven image because he is with you. It also reveals God's jealousy. Exodus talks about that God is a jealous God. You'll have no other gods before me. Sanctify his name, or not using the name of the Lord your God in vain, is speaking to God's holiness. When it talks about remembering the Sabbath, it's, it's talking about the, the rest and the creativity of God. The God isn't a slave driver like they knew Pharaoh to be, but God is different. Remember the Sabbath. Work hard, yes, but also rest. God himself modeled that. Did God need rest after creation? Probably not. But he's modeling a rhythm for us as we engage in creativity, the rhythms of creativity and rest. Honor your parents. This reminder that God is a God of community. And uh, rabbis in the Jewish tradition thought that this, this uh, commandment, the fifth commandment, was kind of the bridge between the first four and then the next set. Because the honor the parents piece is where the vertical starts to translate to horizontal that we have authority in our lives that are vertical, but yet they're human, that, that we are to honor our parents. And so this is a reflection of God's communal nature, that God's created us to be in community. Do not murder. God is the creator, the sustainer, the giver of life. To murder is actually to move against the very character of God. To murder, as we learned the first week, this idea of shalom is actually to participate in shalom breaking, as all these commandments are. Do not commit adultery. This is, reflects how God is faithful, that God actually calls a people, his people, to be faithful because he himself is faithful, proves himself to be faithful. Do not steal. God is provider. God will give you everything you need. You have no lack. As it says in Psalm 23, the Lord is my shepherd. Shepherd, I lack nothing. Do not give false witness that God is a God of truth. Do not covet. God is sufficient. See, God's commandments aren't just a set of do's and don'ts, but it's the almighty God who reveals himself to you and I to have a relationship of covenant with him so that we would know what he's like. The commands are a revelation of who he is, and it sets a high bar because he has a standard for you and I. And why is that important? If we go back to the creation story, we were created in the image of God. And so we were actually created to reflect the nature of God. The Torah, the law, this, this thing that Moses came down the, the mountain with, it was given to teach them to show them how to live, how to worship God, how to please God. In rabbinical tradition, rabbis, the Jewish rabbis, actually taught that when the Torah came, it was given in 70 different languages. And the reason they taught that was because they believed the Torah was for all people. That ultimately God wanted all people to come into a covenant relationship with him. There was a festival of weeks called Shavuot. Everybody say Shavuot. And so this festival was seven weeks from the second day of Passover. So seven sevens is 49 days. And on the 50th day after Passover, they would have a festival. Over time, the festival of weeks actually got merged with another festival that we would know as Pentecost. And Pentecost is just the Greek word that means 50th. So the 50th day 
after Passover, remember how the Jews would celebrate Passover annually to remember what God has done. Every 50 days after Passover, they would have Shavuot or Pentecost where they would celebrate that God had given them Torah, that God had given them law, that God had called them to be a people, that God had made a covenant with them and he had given them the law. This law was a gift God gave them and spoke to their identity. Each covenant, as I mentioned earlier, was attached with a sign or a gift. A wedding ring is a sign, a gift that we give to each other when we get married. When I got married, I was loaded with a student loan. And, uh, and I thought it would be great to marry this girl I was dating named Lisa. And I knew it was important to have this ring, to have this gift, to have this thing that would signify this covenant that I wanted to make with her. And so what other way to spend the rest of my student loan than on a ring? So I drove to Calgary. I asked her to marry me. She said yes. And then we went to the Calgary Tower to celebrate this covenantal commitment And we just racked up this bill of wine, dessert, meal, you know, significantly into the the triple digits. I was like, this is, you know, we're getting engaged. Let's, and uh, and the waitress comes and I go to pay. And some of you know the story, but my card said insufficient funds. (laughs) And what proceeded was one of the most embarrassing phrases I've ever had to make in my life when, you know, she's like, is something wrong? And I'm hitting the machine. I was like, no, no, I think we just got to run it again. And sure enough, it's insufficient funds. And, I, and so the phrase that came out of my mouth was, honey, do you have any money I can borrow? That's, <laughs> that's how we started our covenantal relationship. <laughs> but, I, but I knew that having this ring was, was significant and it was important because covenants have signs. Covenants have gifts. And the Torah just like the circumcision, just like the rainbow, was a sign and a marker of the covenant that God was making with his people. So like I said, Moses came going up and down the mountain. There was one time when he was up there for 40 days and 40 nights with the Lord, and the Israelites grew impatient while they were waiting for him. While in their impatience, they decided to build a golden calf. They took some earrings, from the women and the, the children and gold items, and they melted them, and, they, and, and Aaron helped lead them in this. They built a golden calf to worship because they were impatient during those 40 days waiting on Moses. I wonder how much of the destructive, sinful, shalom-breaking decisions you and I make only because we become impatient. In fact, the early church taught and believed that Patience was one of the markers of the church. That if people could learn to actually wait on God, that we could be faithful. But in our impatience, we become unfaithful. And we see that theme throughout Scripture. In the impatience, the Israelites build themselves an idol that they worship. Moses comes down the mountain in Exodus 32 with a physical copy of the Torah, the law. He sees that they've made this golden calf. And like a good coach in Mark Madness who breaks the clipboard over their knee because they're so angry, Moses, in his anger, snaps and breaks the Torah. Don't worry, he would get another one. Um, but he'd have to go back up the mountain to get it. But he's so angry because of what they've done in their impatience. Moses breaks the tablets, and then he orders some Levites to go back and forth through the camp from one end to the other, each killing his brother and friend and neighbor. And in Exodus 32, we see that on that day, the Levites obeyed Moses' command and about 3,000 people died that day. 3,000. 
And we're going to fast forward the story. And we're going to fill in the gaps in the coming weeks. You know, but after the time of, uh, as history unfolded, there would be a time of, of kings and the monarchy, and, uh, which we'll get to. And then after all of that, uh, God goes silent for 400 years. For 400 years, the God who gave his people Torah, law, who spoke through the prophets, actually stopped speaking. God went silent. The Israelites at this time were in Babylonian exile, being oppressed by Babylon, by the Babylonians. They were slaves in Babylon for 400 years. They were wondering if God had forgotten about them, if God remembered the promises he had given them, if God was going to ever rescue them and bring them out of the land of the Babylonians. Would God send them a rescuer? Would God come and actually fulfill his end of the covenant, that, he would, that we would be his people again? Would God send another Moses? Actually, we heard echoes that there might be this Messiah that would actually be the ultimate deliverer and rescuer. We have Jesus who shows up on the scene, and I, and I talked about some of the similarities even around the birth of Jesus and, and Moses' birth last week, so I want to go back into that. But Moses spent 40 years in the wilderness before God called him to confront Pharaoh as he picked up his calling, his public ministry in a way. Jesus entered his public ministry 40 days after being in the wilderness. So Jesus decides to go public. And he shows up on a mountain in Matthew chapter 5. And Jesus starts teaching. Jesus is a rabbi. He knows the Torah. And he's talking about the Torah. He's teaching about the Torah. Yet he is teaching with an authority that people at that time had never heard. And they weren't quite knowing what to do with it. Because sometimes he was taking the Torah even further. But sometimes it was like he was ignoring the Torah and saying it missed the point. And he would say things like, you've heard it said. And he would quote from the Torah. But I say to you, and he would give something else. You've heard it said, don't murder. But I say to you, if you even have anger in your heart, you are subject to judgment. I've, I, you've heard it said, do not commit adultery. But I say to you, even if you look at a woman with lust in your eye, you've committed adultery with her in his heart. Jesus was actually bringing something new. He was expanding on Torah. This rabbi is giving new teaching on the foot of a mountain. This starts to rub dedicated Jews the wrong way, and throughout the Gospels, we see Jesus being questioned. One of the times, he was tested by an expert in the law, and he was asked, which is the greatest commandment in the Torah? Which is the greatest commandment in all the law? Because they were trying to trap him. And this is Jesus' response. You must love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, and with all your mind. This is the first and greatest commandment. The second is equally important. Love your neighbor as yourself. The entire law... And all the demands of the prophets are based on these two commandments. Jesus says the law is summed up in love God and love people. Jesus also says he came to fulfill the law and not to abolish it. That Jesus shows what it looks like to fully love God and to love other people. It is in Jesus that we see the aim of the, the law, the aim of the Torah fulfilled. The one who would love the Father perfectly and love people per perfectly and lay down his, live, his life for others. Right before the end of Jesus' ministry, before he would go to the cross, he tells his disciples to prepare for the Passover. It was at that time... It was that time of year when the Jewish people would celebrate Passover. When they would get together, they would remember the way that God had rescued them as a people out of Egypt. Jesus says, it's time. Let's get together. Let's do the Passover. So Jesus begins, as they're doing this Passover feast, to reinterpret the meal. This is the bread that is broken. But it's my body that's broken. The blood, which represents the Mosaic Covenant, he's saying this is actually the blood that represents my blood that will be spilt. Jesus would within hours become the lamb of the world that was slain, but instead of blood splattered on a doorpost, it is the blood splattered on an instrument of Roman torture, the cross. Now three days later, he'd return 
He, he would turn the whole world upside down. He would be resurrected, and this resurrection would give his followers the confidence to give everything to the way of Jesus, even their own lives. Jesus stuck around for his resurrection for about 40 days and 40 nights. When it was time for him to go, he told his followers that they would receive power when the Holy Spirit comes on you, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and all Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And it said that Jesus, the beginning of Acts, ascends to heaven in a cloud. After saying this, he was taken up into a cloud while they were watching, and no one could longer see him, and they could no longer see him. Fifty days after that Passover meal that Jesus had with his disciples, where he reinterpreted Passover, basically told them that he's doing a new thing, that there's a new covenant that's about to happen, was the time of Pentecost, Shavuot, where the Jews would get together and remember the gift that they were given, the Torah, the law, which gave them identity as a people. Fifty days after this Passover, they were all gathered in one place. And in Acts 2, it says that suddenly a sound like blowing of a silent wind came from heaven and filled the whole house while they were sitting. They saw what seemed to be like tongues of fire separated and came, came to rest on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit, and all of them began to speak in other languages as the Spirit enabled them. So Pentecost comes, and instead of the Torah, they receive something new, another gift that's described like fire. And it said that when the Holy Spirit came, everybody spoke in other languages, in other tongues. Because what Jesus was doing was actually for the whole world. And this would be a gift. This would be a sign of the new covenant. And it says in John 14, when the Father sends the advocate as my representative, that is the Holy Spirit, he will what? He will teach you everything and, you will, and remind you of everything I have told you. See, the Jews understood that the Torah was given to teach them, to direct them, to show them how to live so they could be a unique people. And Jesus says, I'm, I'm sending one, the Holy Spirit, who will teach you. He's an advocate. This Greek word is parakalit, which means to come alongside. He comes alongside of you. He, he will advocate for you. He will be your cheerleader. And this is in contradistinction to the name hasatan, which is where we get the name Satan from, which means accuser. See, the Holy Spirit is not going to come to condemn you or to accuse you. He's actually going to come to advocate for you. The one who accuses is the unholy spirit. He's different than the one I will send. When the Torah came, 3,000 lives were taken. This Pentecost moment was a beautiful moment for the Jews. It gave them an identity. They were a nation. But it came with a shadow side. When the Torah came, 3,000 died that day. The Torah came and the Torah accused. The Torah condemned. The Torah showed the Israelites all the ways that they were falling short. Yet in Acts 2, we read this. Those who believed what Peter said were baptized and added to the church that day about 3,000 in all. The Torah came and, and 3,000 people died. The Holy Spirit came and 3,000 people were saved. 3,000 people came to life. 3,000 people were taken from spiritual death and given spiritual life. This is what Paul says 
Paul says, this is a covenant not written on law, but of the Spirit. The old covenant ends in death, but under the new covenant, the Spirit gives life. Paul teaches us that the law created sin awareness. It was intended to create an awareness that we need help. The law was intended to put us in a place of desperation and need. It was intended to put us in a posture of wanting to receive. The Old Testament story is the cycle of sin and judgment and forgiveness put on repeat. They can't get rid of their sin. They can't get rid of their faithfulness. You, you just can't, you can't get rid of it. Have you, have you ever had like a, had like a loogie like deep in your throat that you just can't get rid of? Quick story. Then I'll come back to it. I was, I was driving in high school. I was driving on a, on a volleyball trip and I had like this loogie and I just couldn't get rid of it. And I decided to roll down the window and I'm going to spit it out. And I, and I spit it out. But I didn't realize that, that uh, my volleyball teammate had the window open behind me. And, and so my loogie went out, and it actually got sucked back into the window, and it, like, hit him right in the face. I don't know. I, 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 this story came back to me this last week, but it's just like, we see this, this actually idea in the Old Testament that the Israelites are trying to get rid of sin over and over again. And no matter what they do, it just keeps coming back. They keep trying to get rid of it. It keeps coming back. And it's frustrating. And in fact, sometimes the sin they're, they're trying to get rid of doesn't even impact them, but it impacts other people. It impacts their kids. It impacts the next generation. It, it, it impacts everybody. And this is the Old Testament story, the cycle. And Romans says that we have all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. You and I, we've been guilty, just like the Israelites, of making idols, building, maybe it's not a golden calf, but we make idols out of all sorts of stuff. God knows that the problem with our condition is not our behavior, but our hearts. And so he actually comes not to give us a new law, but to give us a new heart. This is the new covenant. In Hebrews 10, 16, 17, it says, This is the new covenant I will make with my people on that day, says the Lord. I will put my laws in their hearts, and I will write them on their minds. Then he says, I will never again remember their sins and lawless deeds. The Torah attempted to change people from the outside, but the Holy Spirit changes people from within. And I want to actually end this morning's message by reading a section from a letter from Paul. And so Paul knew all of this. He was aware of all of this. And so his question was like, what do you do with the law then? You know, if that's what the law was good for, for revealing sin, is it worthless? And Paul says this, but now we have been released from the law, for we died to it and are no longer captive to its power. Now we can serve God, not in the old way of obeying the letter of the law, but in the new way of living in the spirit. Well then, am I suggesting that the law of God is sinful? Of course not. In fact, it was the law that showed me my sin. I would never have known that coveting is wrong if the law had not said you must not covet. So it's like when someone tells you not to look down. What do you do? You look down. And Paul's saying, I didn't, you know, it was the law that told me to covet. And once I understood the law, I was like, what should I be coveting? Uh, He just started looking. But sin used this command to arouse all kinds of covetous desires within me. If, If there were no law, sin would not have the power. At one time, I lived without understanding the law. But when I learned the command not to covet, for instance, the power of sin came into my life and I died. So I discovered the law's commands, which were supposed to bring life, actually brought death. Sin took advantage of those commands and deceived me. It used the commands to kill me. But still the law itself is holy and its commands are holy and right and good. But how can that be? Did the law which is good cause my death? Of course not. Sin used what was good to bring about my condemnation to death. It uses God's good commands for its own evil purposes. So the trouble is not with the law, for it is spiritual and good. The trouble is with me, for I am all too human, a slave to sin. I don't really understand myself, for I want to do what is right, but I don't do it. Anybody test that? I want to do what's right. I don't do it. Instead, I do what I hate. But if I know that what I'm doing is wrong, this shows that I agree that the law is good. 
So I am not the one doing wrong. It is sin living in me that does it. And I know that nothing good lives in me that, and by that I mean my sinful nature. I want to do what is right, but I can't. I want to do what is good, but I don't. I don't want to do what is wrong, but I do it anyways. This is the story of every human being. This is the story of the Old Testament. This is the story of Israel. This is the story of you and me. We want to do different, but we don't. And if I do what I don't want to do, I am not really the one doing wrong. It is sin living in me that does it. I have discovered this principle of life, that when I want to do what is right, I inevitably do what is wrong. I love God's law with all my heart, but there's another power within me that is at war with my mind. This power makes me a slave to the sin that is still within me. Oh, what a miserable person I am. Who will free me from the life that is dominated by sin and death? Thank God. The answer is in Jesus Christ our Lord. So you see how it is. In my mind, I really want to obey God's law, but because of my sinful nature, I'm a slave to sin. And then he goes on to say this. And I'm going to invite you to stand as I conclude with with his conclusion, if you're able. Listen to this. So now, now there is no condemnation for those who belong to Christ Jesus. And because you belong to him, the power of life-giving spirit has freed you from the power of sin that leads to death. The law of Moses was unable to save us because of the weakness of our sinful nature. So God did what the law could not do. He sent his own son in a body like the bodies we sinners have. And in that body, God declared an end to sin's control over us by giving his son as a sacrifice for our sins. He did this so that that the just requirement of the law would be fully satisfied for us who no longer follow our sinful nature, but instead follow the spirit. See, in the old covenant, the law was given so that Israel would become aware in many ways of the gap between them and, though, and what God had called them to be as a people. It's in that gap that we experience desperation and we, we long for rescue, we long for help, we long for something to change and God answers us by sending his son and sending us the Holy Spirit not to give us more behavior modification but to give us true transformation that starts in the heart and works its way out. I'm going to invite you to open your hands as a posture of receiving. I'm going to invite you to receive the Holy Spirit. To receive the Holy Spirit, which is the gift that God has given us to be a part of His covenantal relationship with Him. It is the power that God has given us to actually live as transformed people. So Jesus, we thank you that you came to earth, that you lived perfectly under the law, that you loved God and others perfectly to the point that you gave your very own life for us. And Lord, we thank you that the, for the promise when you ascended to the right hand of the Father, you said, I will send the Holy Spirit to be your advocate, to be your cheerleader, to be your comforter, to be your teacher. And Jesus, we resonate with Paul and we say there's so much good that we want to do and we can't do it on our own. We recognize all the ways that we fall short. And Lord, we admit that we've fallen short and we thank you for the law that has actually told us that we fall short. But Lord, we thank you that you didn't leave it there. And so right now we ask that you would come, that your Holy Spirit would come, that your Holy Spirit would fill us, that you would transform us from the inside out so that we could be your image bearers and walk in covenantal relationship with you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Invite our prayer teams forward. Uh, and the, uh, the giving and the filling of the Holy Spirit is an important piece of the new covenant that changes everything. Um, and so I know we prayed at, kind of at the end of service to to receive the Holy Spirit if you haven't ever done that. Uh, But the Bible also teaches about uh, refilling of the Holy Spirit. Uh, It actually uses an ongoing uh, verb to describe the the Holy Spirit filling believers. Uh, And what's interesting is throughout the New Testament, this happens uh, by laying on of hands, that people would lay their hands on somebody and it would be this this participatory prayer where God would actually fill somebody uh, with his spirit through another believer, which is often the way that God works. And so I would encourage you, um, if you have never done that, uh, if you 
have done that, but you feel like you're running on empty. Uh, and I think God invites us to be continually filled with his spirit, to continually ask him to fill us with the power and the ability to, to be transformed from the inside out. A covenant that's not about just behavior modification, but one that's about living intimately with the God who created us. And so at the end of service, I would invite you to come forward to do that or to receive prayer for anything uh, that you would want to receive prayer for. I'm going to pray. Um, and then, Mara, I wonder if we can sing that bridge, the bridge one more time. And we'll end on the bridge and Mary will dismiss us uh, after we sing that bridge a couple more times. Um, just a reminder that starting point four, class four, uh, is after service. So yeah, Father, we just thank you again that you don't ask anything of us that you don't give us the ability and the power to do. And when we fall short, Lord, it's just a recognition that we live with a deep need. We live with a deep need to be connected to our life source. Like a branch needs to be connected to the, to the tree. Lord, that, that we wither, that, that we die without you. So, Lord, we thank you for this moment this, that we can come together uh, and that we can be reminded uh, to come back to you, the source of all life. Lord, I pray for those who need an advocate. Lord, there's some in this room that are struggling. They're in this cycle of just trying and trying and trying, and they can't change. They can't stop. They can't, uh, you know, they, they have moments of success and living in the way that they, you, they know you've called them to live, and then they fail. Lord, I pray that in that failure, they would not close their heart to you, but instead they would open their heart to you. Lord, I pray that you would give them direction and next steps. Lord, for many of us, that means... Uh, Yes, being filled with the Holy Spirit, but also coming alongside of other people, maybe in the form of counselors or something else that would, uh, that would actually give us the support and structures in our life that we need. So Lord, I pray that you would advocate this morning on behalf of those who need an advocate, that you would encourage those who are struggling with discouragement. Lord, that you would help those who are in need of helping and that you would continue to teach us because we need you to teach us. Thank you, Lord, that this is the promise that you gave us, the sign of the covenant that you gave us. And so we can be confident that you will continue to give us your spirit. In Jesus' name, amen. Have a great week. See you next week.